You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by Serba, the Canada-Eurasia-Russia Business Association. We're a non-profit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of Serba and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. I'm joined today by Lou Nomovsky, a Canadian businessman, former vice president and director general of the Kinross Gold Moscow office, formerly non-executive director at Emur Minerals, Euromax, and Trans-Siberia Goldland, currently senior advisor to Sequent, the New Zealand uh, mining software company, and a non-executive director at GB Gold. He advises a number of other Canadian and international companies and was chairman of the Serba National Board of Directors from 2013 to 2017, immediately after me, as I recall. He started his professional career as a Canadian trade commissioner and has extensive experience in developing trade and bilateral relations between Canada and several Eurasian countries. And I should mention you were awarded the Order of International Cooperation by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Was that in 2015, 2016, Lou, just before you left? It was in 2016 at, uh, at the, uh, I think it was at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, or it might have been in Moscow at another event. I can't remember now. One of the problems of aging. <laughs> it happens to all of us, indeed. Lou, you immigrated to Canada at a very young age from Macedonia. Then it was Yugoslavia. Um, and there's a belief that the young kids absorb the surrounding culture and they forget their roots. What, uh, what would you say about that? Uh, I've certainly seen that happen in, in a lot of uh, families who've emigrated, including Macedonian families. But I guess I was fortunate. Uh, my father was a passionate Yugoslav nationalist and uh, obviously Macedonian. My mother was a teacher back in the old country. So uh, we were, uh, my sister and I were both encouraged to speak only Macedonian at home. And while we resented it at an early age, I think eventually it, it uh, proved to be one of the keys to my personal growth. And um, it, it kept me curious about my homeland. I learned to read and write at the age of 15 after our first trip back to, uh, to Yugoslavia. Two years later, I went there all by myself and I got a real sense of the Slavic culture, history of the region. And it, it was a spark for me uh, entering university as I did in the um, fall of 1974. Um, to pursue um, something. I didn't know exactly what. Uh, I wanted to be involved in international affairs, but I think really uh, the core of my interest came from the family, uh, my pride, my facility in Slavic languages, and that really helped to define my future uh, career. And you ended up studying Soviet studies or Russian studies at Carleton University in the, in the 70s, is that right? Uh, well, it was uh, 1978 when I entered Carleton for my master's, but I, I did study a lot of Soviet uh, politics and history, uh, international affairs at U of T, where I did my uh, honors BA. And that uh, at Carleton, I was uh, originally in the Canadian foreign policy program, but migrated, uh, thankfully, migrated to Soviet studies and worked with a terrific uh, Polish professor who uh, supervised my thesis, my master's thesis, uh, Teresa Rakowska-Harmstone. Uh, she was a very good, a real defender of her, uh, of her students. And I wrote my um, MA thesis on uh, uh, Yugoslav foreign policy and the non-aligned movement. And I had to rewrite it when uh, Tito, Josip Broz Tito, inconveniently died in May of, uh, of 1980. And I had to rewrite my final chapter about 
what the future held for, for Yugoslavia. Interesting. Tell me about uh, how the Soviet Union was perceived in Canada in those days, in the late 70s, early 80s, because that must have influenced your decision to, to, to enter the trade. Well, to be honest, um, life is a series of accidents, I firmly believe. And uh, I, I was aware of, of the Cold War mentality uh, that existed on both sides of the Cold War. Uh, in Canada, there was a you know about the hockey rivalry. I don't have to tell you about how that uh, the gestation of that from 1972 on. And so there was a mixture of curiosity. Hockey rivalry. What, what, what hockey rivalry? <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we don't think it's a rivalry anymore, but it certainly was. And so that was uh, on the positive side. There was a desire to prove that as a small country relative to the Soviet Union, uh, as the inventors of ice hockey, so we claimed uh, we could be better. And the, of course, the Soviets were more than a match. Our mutual friend, uh, Vladislav Tretiak, proved that on many occasions. So that's the one side of, of the perception from Canada. The other side, of course, as a NATO member and the uh, perceived threat to the potential aggression from the Soviet Union. So there was that. And But generally, there was a, a real ignorance to, uh, about how people lived in the Soviet Union, despite the fact that the country in Canada in the early 20th century had a lot of emigres from Ukraine and parts of Russia, um, people who did not remember fondly their homeland. Uh, so that was also um, uh, an influence on Canadian perceptions of the Soviet Union. Did that, uh, did that education influence you in your decision to enter the Trade Commissioner Service? I mean, you ended up a Trade Commissioner in Moscow in the early 80s, as I recall. Yeah, well, that's uh, like, uh, as I said, a series of accidents. I, I was sent to Regina, Saskatchewan. And uh, uh, for, for a kid from Toronto. Well, now that's, uh, that's exotic. Well, it was. It, I keep saying that's my first foreign posting. <laughs> and uh, while I was there, I got married. And my HR director at the time said, well, we want to, you've done a great job, uh, which was a lie. <laughs> uh, I was learning. I didn't do very much. He said, so we, we want to give you an early posting. We want to send you to Chicago. And I said, what? Chicago? I said, that's not foreign. It's not exotic. You have any idea that I'm the only one of our group of 20 odd uh, recruits that actually speaks several Slavic languages? I want to go on Russian language training. And um, he says, well, I don't know about that, um, but we'll, re we'll reconsider. Anyway, before I left Regina, I spent almost a year there. I was told that I would go on Russian language training in the fall of uh, 1981, uh, which I did after five, six months working at CETA. Um, and I started this uh, course um, taught by um, a gentleman, um, a Russian emigre, who uh, grew up in, in Yugoslavia. So we had a simpatico between us because we had both lived in Yugoslavia. And um, my colleagues, the other two gentlemen who started with me, spent a full year on this course. I left after three months, which was partly an indication of how I could absorb. Obviously, the, there's a lot of commonality to the two languages, Macedonian and Russian. Um, I picked up uh, the grammar reasonably well, and I just wanted to talk. I wanted to read and, I, and to talk, and so I, I was given a tutor two nights a week while I worked at uh, CETA. I just practiced. We read Pravda, Izvestia together. Uh, she was a lovely lady from, uh, from Kiev and really helped me to uh, improve the fluency of my Russian language. So I was really excited. You remember the good old saying, there's no Pravda in Pravda and no Izvestia in Izvestia. Yeah, <laughs> pravda meaning yeah. truth and Izvestia meaning news. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was clear, obviously. The idea wasn't to debate Russian or Soviet politics. The idea was for me to learn vocabulary, which I did. 
Uh, sadly, um, I learned a lot about discussing politics and economics. Uh, I did. Uh, I didn't. Uh, didn't learn a lot about real life in in Russia until I got there in in August of 1982. But uh, to go back to your earlier question, what what really stimulated me to to learn about uh, Soviet Union, to aspire to go there in some capacity, hopefully as a diplomat, uh, was my was my upbringing, was my love of, of Slavic culture, language and then study as an undergraduate and then graduate school. And obviously, when you realize your dream, much harder for, for today's generations, but 40 years ago, it, it, uh, it was possible uh, to achieve your goals. And I, I thought I had died and gone to heaven when I arrived in, in the Soviet Union uh, for my f- first posting there. Uh, it, was, it was a dream come true. Were you on the ag file then, or what were you doing then? I was on the egg file, courtesy of my year in Regina. Um, it was a little bit of a joke because they normally put people who had no interest in agriculture in that role. It was years before they actually seconded people from the uh, Department of Agriculture to do that job. I remember that. Yeah. But, you know, I, I just I just loved uh, the opportunity to work on some really interesting projects, the export of, of um, uh, purebred uh, Holstein bull semen, actual live animals. Um, I had my duties as the trade commissioner liaison with the uh, Export Club, uh, the counterpart to the Canadian Wheat Board. And uh, it was just a terrific two years, which I didn't really want to end, but uh, they decided I should go on an early, well, it wasn't an early posting. In those days, the standard posting in Moscow was two years. And uh, they wanted to send me to, um, uh, to Mexico City and and my first question was great which job am i going to do there oh you're going to continue in agriculture and i said nah i don't think so so ultimately i went to atlanta georgia which i i did not enjoy professionally and i was desperate to get back to something involving the soviet union Uh, and so they promptly offered me an early posting there after two years and they offered me abu dhabi and i said sure i'll try it on and then two weeks later, they called me and said, oh, no, we have a crisis in Baghdad. You have to go to Baghdad if you want to leave Atlanta early. So we went to Baghdad, my wife and I. Um, thoroughly fascinating experience there. I learned to speak some Arabic. which Baghdad, I that, that must have been at the height of the Iran-Iraq war. Indeed it was. We took several Scud missiles uh, on the city of Baghdad while we lived there. One was about 500 meters from our home. It, it was quite frightening. But people can become accustomed to a lot of stresses and problems. Hmm. So Baghdad, uh, let's get back to, to Russia and, and the, the Soviet Union. Do you have any stories? Do you, do you remember anything from the early 80s? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I came yeah. to, to Russia for the first time in 1987, and it was already the, the beginning of Perestroika. What was it like in the early 80s? Well, it was, it was a, just as you read in the spy novels. We were tailed. We would, uh, we would put tape on our front door of our apartment and uh, they would be clumsy and they would walk in and uh, the tape was not there. Uh, when we get back from work, my wife was also working at the Anglo-American school in the first year that we were there. Um, it was really difficult. I, I, we didn't know a lot of Russians. And so I tried really hard to, to get to know Russians, Ukrainians. I would travel to Ukraine frequently. And so just having quality time with people, you didn't really know whether they were genuine or whether they were there to set you up somehow. But I just uh, threw caution to the wind, and we had some really good uh, friends in Kiev. We had uh, other friends in Moscow that we would sneak into into our compound, Upedeka compound, uh, after dark, uh, 
that was the lifestyle in the early 80s. But I still I found it very rewarding. And I, I, I was bitten by the bug, so to speak. And so going to Atlanta, I was dissatisfied. Baghdad, it was exciting, but we didn't extend. And I got back as soon as I could to uh, the desk, uh, the, the, the Russia um, and Soviet Union desk in 1988. Uh, and then I didn't last very long in the department. I wasn't apparently bureaucratic enough. And so I, once I received an offer to become the first executive director of the Canada, um, uh, Russia or Canada, Serba, no, <laughs> CUBC, Canada, Canada, USSR, Canada, USSR <laughs> Business Council. Sorry, uh, everything is uh, melding into one theme. In any event, that was an exciting job. I spent two years there. That was the launch pad for me to go to the uh, EBRD, where I, I went to Russia. I was going to say, at that point, you jumped ship. You were no longer in, in government, and you stayed in private business for the rest of your career, right? Well, as it turns out, I, I wanted to quit, but I was caught by somebody at the Public Service Commission who uh, uh, told me about something I wasn't aware that I could ask for a, um, uh, an executive interchange, which I was granted. So the first two years at the CUBC, I was on that. Then I tried to quit again when I went to EBRD. And the same man said, you don't learn very quickly, do you, young man? <laughs> he said, you could get an international executive interchange. Why quit now? And so I said, terrific. So I did that. And you know, after six years of being outside the, the government, I was told either I come back or I, I retire. And so I retired and I vested my pension, uh, which I started to collect uh, five years ago when I retired. So I was happy I did that. Um, and uh, you know, that, that experience in the, in the Foreign Service as a trade commissioner in all my three posts was really useful as I entered the business uh, community um, uh, you know, through, the, through the auspices of the CUBC and then the EBRD. Uh, and so it was there. The experience was was extremely rewarding. I, I owe my career to the Canadian Foreign Service, which is uh, it was very difficult to 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 uh, be selected through the competitive process. So that made me feel pretty good about myself. But equally, when EBRD offered me a job, it was a, a wonderful opportunity as well. I'm trying to remember there was some story on you in the EBRD. Somebody wrote a very negative something about you. Tell me that story. I'm trying to remember that. Well, it's, it's actually after the EBRD. It was at Visa. Oh, um, really? Okay. We, uh, when, I, when I took over the Visa and opened the office for Visa in, in, in Russia, uh, I wanted to reform things because the business wasn't going very well while Russia was about to take off and the, and the, and the consumer society was, was really picking up. So I, um, I reformed a lot of things. And the, the old boys network that existed while uh, my predecessor at Visa um, worked with the, the, the banks, quote-unquote worked, um, it was a complete mess. So I, I decided to reform things. And one of the things we decided to do is to stop giving away visa licenses to these, you know, you remember better as well as I do, there were well over 5,000 banks in Russia uh, in the early part of the 2000s. And he would give away these licenses for, for that turned out to be vanity projects for some of these regional uh, bank <laughs> owners. And then I, I started to uh, enforce the rules. And the rules said you have to issue cards before you can, and you have to issue, and you have to have a business plan. And there was this one particular bank in the Urals that didn't really like what I had done. So I found this out much after later than the, the article appeared. But I was in Cyprus at a meeting of our senior uh, banks, bank representatives, and my PR 
um, uh, colleague, she called me and she said, uh, are you sitting down? I said, well, no, I'm standing up because we're, we're milling around after this uh, presentation. She said, um, I'll send you something by email. So she sent me this article and I read it. And it basically, the, the premise was, um, uh, what do oligarchs collect? And it started off the first few paragraphs about the famous oligarchs and their uh, Fabergé collections, et cetera, et cetera, and, and how they had to pay homage to the state because, of course, this is Russia. But this is not a fate that Lunomovsky has to worry about. Uh, as everyone knows, uh, he was a former diplomat and likely a spy. Um, and uh, he's uh, in managing visa. He is collecting bank uh, executives, and he refuses to appoint certain people to to these, this post or that post, uh, this was an inference that I had any power to appoint people to the to the boards, and I didn't because everybody would stand for election and be, and be elected for the Visa Russia board or for the Samia board. In any event, I was really quite uh, hurt by this, stupidly in, in retrospect. So I called around to some of the bankers that I that I knew well, and I said, "What am I to make of this?" And one fellow who sadly perished earlier this year from from COVID. Uh, Pasha Ivanov, uh, he started laughing on the phone. And I said, well, what are you laughing about? He says, well, you know, you, you've got the, the opposite reaction to what you should have. Uh, when people are afraid of you, that means you've arrived. You matter. So you should hold your head up high because somebody wants to, to bring you down means that you matter and you've made a difference. Indeed. Now, technology was changing in those days. You talked about how Russia leapfrogged over the West in the area of credit card payments during our uh, last talk. Tell me more about that. Well, in fact, we're really talking about electronic payments. And uh, uh, it all began with, uh, with uh, debit cards, something that in the United States was not very popular because credit cards uh, were initially uh, issued in the late 70s. And then, of course, uh, everything was based on the electronic or the, the, the magnetic strip on each card. So the, 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 it was certainly a lot faster than, than at the beginning when you were uh, settling transactions uh, by telex or by mail before that. So everybody was happy in the West about magnetic uh, strips and, and that type of electronic settlement between the issuing banks and the acquiring banks when people made purchases. Uh, Russia didn't have that legacy. So um, two things were happening in Russia. On the one hand, a lot of uh, enterprising Russians were developing chip cards, so where you could store data on chips and readers that would that would would uh, read this information and the settlement would happen electronically. But by this, at the same time, the uh, Russian industry was still paying uh, salaries in cash, and it was burdensome. It, it, security issues. The biggest problem was was a sociological problem where where factory workers would. Get their pay packet, go to the go to the pivnaya, and drink most of that money away, and the wives would be very very upset. So when we started, it wasn't my idea, but I I developed it with my colleagues. We started to develop uh, the concept of salary cards, and we would travel across the country as I did and my colleagues, my subordinates did, uh, meeting with large enterprises, Chelyabinsk, uh, uh, Krasnoyarsk, places like that, and convincing them of the value of of opening accounts for their employees in whatever bank they wanted that was a visa member bank and issuing them these debit cards where the salaries would be would be uh, deposited each 
every fortnight. In any event, um, the wives loved this because they could hold on to the cards. The husbands could not go uh, and spend the money before they brought it home. <laughs> and the take-up was just phenomenal. I mean, in the three or four years that we did that very aggressively, we signed up so many uh, uh, enterprises. And the number of Visa cards went from about 800,000 in August of 2000 when I joined to when I left in 2007, there were 43 million wow. uh, payment cards in Russia, uh, the vast majority of which were were Visa cards. So uh, it was a very successful Now strategy. that's expansion. That's expansion. And then about four years after I joined Visa, we started to develop credit cards. And that was a very uh, challenging thing to do. One of the problems was under then Russian law, if you uh, bought something on a credit card, the interest uh, would accrue from the moment of payment. And so if you didn't pay within, uh, you know, as soon as possible, you were charged compound interest, which most Russians and I grant you most North Americans still don't know what compound interest is. But in any event, so we, we said this isn't going to help us to, to expand uh, credit cards. So we went to Vladislav Reznik. When we spoke last, I couldn't remember his name, but uh, he was the head of the finance committee. Um, we told him what the problem was. And he immediately understood. He asked us, me and my Russian colleague, one of my subordinates, to draft an amendment to the tax code, which we did. Uh, sent it to him four days later. Uh, within a month, it was in the uh, draft that went to the president. So this was in uh, just around Christmas of that year. And then in the, on the 30th of January, the president signed it into law. So with that change, the grace periods that banks could give their customers where uh, where interest was not charged as income and 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 it didn't compound that was really the, the one of the keys to the development of the credit card market in, in Russia and now it's it's expanding initially people would only take money out of the ATM but then they realized with this grace period they could buy substantive things and plan their their budget uh, much more effectively so that uh, so Russia today has I don't know what the current figure is, but there are millions of credit cards where there were several thousand only in, in 2004 or five. So you actually wrote part of the Russian legislation on credit cards. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. That's right. On, on, on the grace periods that, yeah, it was, I mean, for me as a former diplomat, when I thought that was the only way to become involved in international affairs to influence things, I realized not just at Visa, but, uh, but subsequently in my other work with Kinross and uh, that individuals in the 21st century involved in international commerce, involved in international relations, can have at least as much and, and sometimes even more influence on how um, things happen in the country where they're stationed. And it, it was uh, enormously rewarding for me, not just that example from from Visa, but from Kinross when we helped to reform Russian subsoil legislation. It was immensely satisfying to know that if you're there with goodwill, with no pre-existing uh, suspicions or anything saying, you know, we'd like to help because uh, rising tide floats all boats, let us suggest these things to you. And um, new generations of enlightened bureaucrats in, in post-Soviet Russia were, were really keen to listen and to learn and to implement uh, uh, things that uh, could help uh, Russian consumers and the Russian economy. 
Well, you're, you're helping me segue into the next phase of your life. How does a guy like you with zero education in mining end up being one of the major uh, mining executives of Russia? You, you knew nothing about mining. How do you jump from Visa International credit cards into uh, one of the world's leading mining companies? Well, I, I, I told you, life is a series of accidents. I was, I was working for Visa sitting in my house. It was Christmas of 2006. I get a call from um, Jacob Kunzer, who was a trade commissioner at the embassy in Moscow, Canadian embassy. You remember Jacob? Um, Great guy, Jacob. Yeah. Love Jacob. Yeah. He says, Lou, how are you? I said, Jacob, uh, I haven't seen you for a while. How are things? He says, well, I got a proposition for you. Have you ever heard of Kinross Gold? And I said, yeah, I've heard of them. When I was at EBRD, I was uh, responsible for their uh, for our investment in their project uh, in, in Russia, in in, uh, in Magadan. And, and, I, and I had met uh, several of the executives uh, earlier when my wife wanted me to, to leave, uh, uh, to, leave uh, to go back to Canada. So I had some familiarity. He said, well, they've, they've, they're about to make a big acquisition in Russia, reacquisition. They, they left uh, br briefly the market, and they're looking for somebody to head their Moscow office. Would you be interested? I said, sure. Why not? So uh, when I was home for Christmas, um, I had my first interview. I had a total of six or seven interviews. And by March of, of that uh, year of 2007, I, uh, I was made an offer. Uh, and they kept changing the offer when I wouldn't. Uh, and, and of course, it was too good to turn down. Uh, and I, yes, you're right. I knew very little about mining, although I had worked on, the, uh, on the two mining projects while I was at EBRD. So I could BS uh, almost as well as you can, uh, Nathan, about things I know very little about. And so um, I, I took the oh, job. Oh, I'm a good BSer, let me tell you. Oh, no, I've, after 30 years of knowing you, I, I can attest to that. In any event, <laughs> so I, I joined on September the 7th um, of 2007. And I knew that I, I couldn't add any value to the company based on my ge uh, knowledge of geology, although I did get a, a quick course uh, at the University of Guelph uh, before joining. Uh, I, um, I had to add value in a different way. So I turned the Moscow office into a true representative office, representing the interests of the company. Worked closely with uh, the, the, the actual mining specialists in Magadan and at the Kupel mine. And I, and I carved out a role for myself and for our office that I think did add value. Uh, and it wasn't my idea to do these recommendations on mining legislation reform. It was the then CEO, Ty Burt. But I took his idea, ran with it, and we developed a series of white papers. Uh, there's a fourth that has come out in the last year and a half, uh, very well done by uh, Stanislav Baradyuk, whom I hired and who succeeded me in that role. And... So we didn't interfere in, in, in the mining operations, but we did have authority over government relations, over regulatory affairs. And, and we did help uh, you know, when there were bottlenecks and uh, uh, we helped because of uh, my previous contacts and, and our, my ability to ensure that uh, Kinross Gold was accepted into the Foreign Investment Advisory Council. Um, and uh, that gave us a, a profile that's, I'm uh, going to interrupt you here. The, for, you just you just dropped that name like it's nobody. But Foreign Investment Advisory Council is a big deal, as Joe Biden would say, a big effing deal. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, the largest uh, investors in uh, the entire world from countries all over are members of that. And you, I, I believe, engineered for Kinross to become the very first Canadian company represented on that council. Am I right? 
Well, I wouldn't say engineered. I facilitated it. Um, uh, my history with uh, with uh, uh, with FIAC goes back uh, to when I uh, ran the EBRD office in in Russia. Um, the first, very first meeting of the FIAC uh, organizing committee happened in my boardroom at the EBRD offices. I was a member of the executive committee. Um, we would uh, um, work very closely with then uh, Minister of Economy Yashin. Um, um, and where, so I had a, I had some background and, um, and as a consequence, I knew a lot of people, not only the companies, but, uh, people at Ernst and Young who administer the FIAC. And I made the case for, for Kinross and it was a big deal because it was the biggest, the, the Kupal acquisition was the biggest, uh, investment in, in the Russian mining by a foreign company over $3 billion. And so the, it was justifiable for them to accept, uh, Kinross. And we worked with FIAC in order to give legitimacy to the uh, mining reforms that we proposed. Uh, and it, and it, uh, it uh, um, how to say, it, it raised the level of, of importance and attention that the government played, um, uh, paid to, to what we were proposing. And of the 16 initial reforms, while I was still working for Kinross, nine of which were adopted, and subsequently a couple more have been adopted. And this is the kind of thing that doesn't happen easily, even in Canada. You know, the Mining Association of Canada has fought long and hard for some of the reforms in capital markets and in other areas uh, over many, many years. Yet in Russia, we managed over just a handful of years, four or five years, uh, to to really impact um, uh, the development of mining legislation, which made it a more comfortable environment for both foreigners, although there are not a lot, if any, serious companies uh, looking at the market today, but also for Russian companies who could state claims, who could do the kinds of things that uh, junior miners in in the in the West can do. Yeah, a lot of people know that that Kinross is the largest Canadian investor uh, in Russia. A lot of people don't know that Kinross is the largest investor from any country in the world in the Russian mining sector. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And um, after I left uh, Chubalkan, uh, it was an asset that, that Kinross acquired. It's, it's a large, very prospective area in the Khabarovsk region. So if you add that to the two previous investments, Kupol Dvainoy, uh, it means, uh, and I'm really pleased, uh, I still own some Kinross shares, so I'm very pleased that the company uh, is continuing its work, adventure, very successful operations in Russia with that additional acquisition. Yeah, Chulbatkan, we call it affectionately the Chewbacca venture. I can remember that name. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, it's actually only the, the one area in, in a larger property that they've acquired. But yes, it uh, and it. what does it say? I used to speak at PDAC and at other international conferences, and people would say, wait a minute, how is it that Kinross succeeded when, when other much larger companies uh, have failed? And I said, well, it's not rocket science. It's working methodically, developing relationships, being completely transparent, uh, and understanding that we are guests in a sovereign country, and we're exploiting resources because they allow us to do that. So we have to be on our best behavior, and uh, on all levels, Kinross is on its best behavior. Now, we're getting to the crux of today's talk. Um, when you and I spoke over a month ago, you said, you know, your radio series is interesting, it's kind of fun, but it's not really touching on business issues, is it, Nathan? You're not really talking about, you know, how to do business in Russia. You're interviewing rock stars and cultural people, and it's fun, and it's interesting, but uh, wouldn't it be nice to have a series that actually talked about doing business in Russia? And 
if you have taught us anything, Lou, and correct me if, if you disagree, it's that you really can influence the system. Some people believe, well, if you go to Russia, you know, you're going to be at the mercy of the bureaucrats. Uh, they'll, they'll take you down. They'll, they'll shake you down. Uh, but uh, you, in your position at Kinross, I think firmly showed that a company that, that uh, behaves as it would in the West, that behaves as a responsible corporate citizen, can actually influence and count on the, the support of the Russian government. Am, am I right? Can you expand on that? Absolutely. Um, I'll do more than just expand on that. I'll, I'll say that going back decades, when I first started my career, the ability to influence individuals in Russia was always there. You know, when I worked in, in animal genetics uh, as, as the ag official in the embassy, you know, I had a good relationship with people at Plemscott, which was the foreign trade organization that, that uh, did the imports. Uh, I worked really hard with uh, uh, with Canadian companies, even from Saskatchewan. Flexicoil was a company, a uh, family-owned company uh, from Saskatchewan. Uh, the, the patriarch developed something called a, a, a Packerhero draw bar, which allowed uh, yields in, in the dryland areas of Saskatchewan to improve because uh, this did not tear the soil up and leave it available, uh, open to, uh, to erosion, but it, it repacked the soil after the seeds were, were, were sown. And it was a phenomenal... Uh, technology and we, I worked uh, over a year on that company's behalf, and they sold a license. At the time, Terry Summick, the, the the son of the patriarch uh, who was running the company, said, "You saved my company." I said, "I didn't save your company. You have a technology that the Soviet Union needs." We worked hard with with the licensing uh, organization, and they received two point eight million dollars. U.S. for this license, which was about four million dollars Canadian, they delivered all of the uh, the technology, the drawings, uh, a number of machines to be used in Kazakhstan uh, at the time, as uh, Inagrad was the place uh, uh, that they were going to use it in in the area, and they never produced a single machine. It was a license to manufacture the machine, but the fact is that my efforts and the company's persistence, so we could make inroads in the in the Soviet. Uh, bureaucracy in order for them to buy the first at at the time the only license to from Canada to be uh, to be bought by the Soviet Union so I go way back in that and and whatever role I had uh, I I really believed that I could influence individuals sometimes organizations and certainly with visa we we had a lot of influence but it's as a global brand they took us seriously and then with the Kinross why did they take Kinross seriously well uh, the company put its money where its mouth was. Certain other companies that shall remain nameless from Canada and elsewhere come and, and say, they sharpen their elbows and say, move aside, we can do it all, uh, but you need to be humble, you need to be absolutely transparent, you need to show diligence, and you need to invest money. And you also need to know, learn how to protect your investment by developing the relationships, by cultivating new relationships, by... Uh, demonstrating uh, that you, your way of doing business, your approach to uh, corporate social responsibility uh, is just as sincere in Russia as it is in your other jurisdictions. And, and you, you gain a lot from that. And uh, you may remember, I used to say that uh, when, when relations after 2014 deteriorated between Canada and Russia, I used to say, you need to engage. And I used to point to Kinross's example where uh, as a company, highly regarded, not just at the regional, local level, 
but nationally because of the way we conducted ourselves and our ability to influence not just the people who worked for, for us at Kinross, our ability to influence local officials, and at the national level was based on the fact that we had we were engaged. We were a part of the Russian economy. Continues, uh, Kinross continues to be part of the Russian economy, bringing huge value, obviously earning profits by being there, but, but bringing huge value, not just in financial terms, but in moral, in social and and the downstream economic terms, it, it's what you need to do. You can't be half pregnant when you deal with Russia, and and Kinross is the best Canadian, perhaps the only so far Canadian example. But there are many other uh, global companies who've gone there and had the similar experience and have been there for decades. And remember, Kinross first went there before it was it even existed in the early '90s when it was an exploration company. Um, and it developed. Yeah, John Ivany, I remember those days. Well, it, it goes back to even before uh, John Ivany, but I knew I knew John very well when I applied to work for Kinross back in whenever my wife wanted me to return in 2000. He laughed. He said, "Well, we're tired of Russia." He says, "You're you're a few years too late, Lou. Uh, I don't think we're going to be doing anything in Russia." Seven years later, new management, uh, shareholder support, uh, things change. Very interesting. Very interesting. So. Not only are you the only major uh, mining company to have success in Russia, but you're certainly the only one that has actually influenced the the uh, uh, legislative base. I mean, you you put things in your white papers that actually made it into Russian law, as I believe, and not and not uh, not on one occasion, but more like on fourteen major occasions. Well, uh, at my count before I left the company was that we had influenced nine significant changes to the subsoil code out of 16 recommendations that we made. And then subsequently, a couple of the other recommendations were, were developed and uh, Stanislav and, and all the, the, the huge team that, that has worked on this at Kinross have, have made even more inroads. So yeah, it, that's a, for me, it's a point of pride. It is certainly for the company. Um, and I believe that it, it's a testimony to uh, what Canadians can do when they put their mind to it, when they put their, when the shareholders support what they're doing. And, and obviously when, when they invest the money and the time and the people, getting the right people is so critical. Uh, I remember uh, years ago, I won't mention the company, but there was a huge Canadian company that came into Russia in, in a different sector entirely, brought well over a hundred people, family, families, children, spent a whole bunch of money. And the first mo time that they encountered a, a regulatory issue, they ran tail and, and they missed huge opportunities by, by trying to resolve. Uh, yeah, it wasn't very uh, uh, pretty, but it could have been handled in my opinion. I was an observer. I worked for Visa at the time, so I watched it happen. But in any event, um, these things happen and Kinross uh, uh, deserves credit for what it's done and, uh, and, the, and the management and the shareholders for the support that they've given. So I, I think it can be done and, and it's proof for any other Canadian company with the desire, the determination, obviously the wherewithal that's necessary to, to stay in a market and to, um, uh, to battle the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, which we all know can happen uh, in the Russian market. You once said you don't learn until you make mistakes. If I had to quote Luna Mosque, I'd probably remember, I'd, 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 I'd probably use that quote. What, uh, what were some mistakes you made or others made that uh, created life lessons? Well, I think um, at the, we'll start with the EBRD. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a huge uh, multilateral institution. It has very 
uh, rigid um, and inflexible governance principles being owned by, uh, I guess, 66, 68 countries now. Um, and there was a sort of a preconceived notion that, you know, if we provide technical assistance, you know, Russia is full of PhDs and engineers and very brilliant people, and we give them the report that that'll make a difference. And I think uh, it occurred to me very early on in my tenure, you know, even as representative of the bank in the country, it's very hard to influence management and particularly the board back in London. And I think the big mistake was um, believing that technical assistance was an avenue towards helping Russia reform. And also the wrong assumption that, oh yeah, success looks like us. Russians need to look like us. The Russian economy needs to look like our mixed economies in the West. And you know, when you look at uh, privatization in Russia, it was clumsy like many reforms. Uh, it led to uh, concentration of, uh, of assets into a certain group of, of uh, what are known as oligarchs now. And one of the mistakes that we made, uh, I remember at EBRD, my, uh, I don't mind if, if Guy actually listens to this. Guy, Guy de Selye was uh, a number uh, two guy in the, in the commercial part of the, uh, of the bank. He and I went to see Anatoly Chubais. And um, he had a really good idea, theoretically, a wonderful idea that the, uh, that the uh, EBRD could facilitate privatization, especially of the large industrial complexes, by becoming a neutral third party that would help uh, developing prospectuses, running the tenders so that uh, operating companies, strategic investors from the entire world could join in in the, in the uh, privatization. Well, the mistake made there was to presume that that was the only way that would, would yield success and to ignore what I learned well, I knew, but I, I didn't dare say anything to Guy about his idea. But uh, Chubias, uh, who speaks excellent English, turned to me and he said, Lou, you know very well that this isn't possible in our country. It's a wonderful theoretical idea. But in our country, we have to let our guys, we have to give them the opportunity to privatize these, these assets. So what could we have done differently? Well, we could have taken that response and say, okay, fine, how can we work with Vashi uh, with your guys? How can we help them to do this properly and so that the state can earn more money for the privatization so that they can get the kind of support they need to, to shorten the period of transition? We didn't do that. It was uh, the, re uh, the reaction from Guy was, hmm, well, that's, that's, are you sure that's what he said? I said, yeah, I know that's exactly sure. He's, I said, I don't know why he didn't tell you in English, but he told me, so I'm telling you now. Uh, so that was one of the mistakes that the institution, I think in hindsight at the time, uh, I was just not really a, a significant enough in the hierarchy of the bank to to push my my views. So that was one thing. In terms of, of uh, Visa, I think one of the, well, we didn't make a mistake, but we saw other mistakes. Uh, you know, uh, Visa was the, the number one brand in, in international payments, electronic payments. And so my predecessors said, oh, aren't you happy as Russian banks to, to join this international organization? And I turned, turned that around. I realized it was a mistake. And I said, no, no, we, uh, my, my uh, tagline was, we are the most international of Russian payment systems. And so we, we did things like sponsoring the Russian Ice Hockey Federation, uh, the, the President's Cup of uh, Golf, that we did at, at Nahabina over five years. Uh, we did things to uh, make people feel that Visa was their brand 
and and by the same token that they were part of an international network of banks and and cardholders. So that was uh, very positive. In terms of uh, Kinross, well, it's not a mistake, but my my vain hope was that before I retired, that we would have acquired uh, an additional asset. I'll tell you. Um... You also did uh, a lot of help for, for, for other mining companies, not just Kinross. You know, you're not a junior miner, uh, but you uh, reformed the, the claim-staking legislation. In the past, it wasn't possible to, to stake a claim uh, and immediately turn it into a production license. Now I'm, I'm over my pay grade when I speak here, but uh, uh, you used to have to go to tender. If you found something nice, you had to set it up for auction. You may or may not get what you found, and you changed all that, didn't you? Well, that's still that's still the case uh, for deposits that that have uh, registered, um, um, uh, let's say, or, or proven proven deposits. Uh, but what what did happen because of our uh, efforts was that they understood that that claim staking is is not a bad thing. It's not the wild west. It basically gives people the incentive to look to explore. And if you stake a claim and then you get your exploration license and you find it, then you get your development license. Uh, that's a good thing because you're going to continue to, to invest money. There wasn't a real sense that exploration was an economic activity that, that brought in um, uh, money and investment, but it does. It costs a lot of money to explore. And, and you need Russian drilling companies. You need Russian geologists. And so that stimulates the economy, not just uh, the the actual mining, but but exploration. So there's a lot of enlightened uh, officials in uh, Rosnyedra and, and in other agencies that started to appreciate that. I heard somebody say that thanks to Kinross's efforts, it is now easier to stake a claim in Russia than it is in Brazil. Is that right? Uh, I haven't I hadn't heard that, but it's probably true. Uh, and when you compare Brazil, and again, here's the perception versus reality. Brazil has a very very challenging. Uh, fiscal uh, regime, okay. In many ways, Russia is is is. Uh, if you're a mining company, it's easier to deal with in terms of of royalties, in terms of the tax structure, uh, in terms of uh, your obligations. So uh, I learned that. I don't know that much about Brazil, although Kinross is active and, and has one of its biggest or th its biggest open pit mine in Brazil. But I often heard my colleagues, both on the finance side and on the mining side, say, "Hey." You know, when they would come to Russia, hey, this is a lot easier than it is in Brazil. And as we see in terms of, uh, you know, envir environmental enforcement, um, the, Russia is serious about environmental reinforcement, enforcement rather. But, you know, if you behave responsibly in any jurisdiction, you can make it in Russia as well. And when, when, when you're fined, you pay the fine. Uh, you can argue and you can go to court. And surprisingly, here's another myth that you know, both the customs court and, and the tax court is completely rigged. It's not. You know, like many foreign investors in, in Russia, uh, Kinross has used the courts to its advantage. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but it's not a foregone conclusion. And yet the, the prevailing international uh, belief is that, oh, you, you can't do that because you're bound to lose. And it's just not the case. Great life lessons. You know, we've talked a lot about mining. But uh, after mining, you have advised companies, you've advised agricultural companies, you've advised manufacturers. Uh, do you have any interesting stories about what you did after retirement, uh, quote unquote retirement, I should say? <laughs> well, for me, the most amazing thing is I applied not for a single position. So if you spend long enough in a place and you have a reasonably positive reputation, people will, will seek you out. So my first uh, board seat was with Amur Minerals. I knew the people that were involved while I was at Kinross. Uh, and so I spent almost four years on that board. 
uh, I have to say my tenure wasn't successful because uh, I had suggestions, uh, multiple suggestions. We had heated debates about what we need to do to to advance that uh, that project. Uh, and then there was a change of control and I left the board. Uh, then I was concurrently recruited to join the board of Euromax, which had a still has a, a project in, in Macedonia, where I'm from. And uh, yet again, I tried to influence their understanding of how Macedonian politics work and what they needed to do to, uh, to accelerate uh, the permits that they were waiting to receive. Again, my advice uh, was not heeded because there was you know, most of the management were very cultured, uh, effete, uh, if I might say, Brits who, who wanted to do things the way things were done in, in the West and were not prepared to be um, sort of very proactive and, and critical of the government to try and move the project along because essentially Western, Eastern Macedonia needs some kind of industry because it can't survive on agriculture alone. In any event, uh, that didn't happen. So I kept getting these offers and the most recent offer is with GV Gold, which is a, a venerable number seven or eight gold producer in Russia. Uh, it, it's uh, it's a it's a joint stock company, so there are non uh, let's say there are unrelated uh, shareholders as well. And I was uh, surprised and, and and honored to be uh, offered a, a board seat. And so that's interesting because it's a purely Russian company, even though there's a, uh, there's Western capital in it as well. I don't represent any capital. I'm purely independent. Uh, I'm on the audit committee, and I'm learning a lot. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to physically be in the room with the other members of the board, although I do know several of them. I know the management. Um, that's been a wonderful experience. And the same thing. I mean, I worked uh, for three and a half years uh, for BRP, formerly Bombardier Recreational Products, um, helped them to refine their search for a potential location for a, a manufacturing facility because I knew the chairman who sits on the on the advisory board of uh, of uh, McCain Foods, um, he recommended me to to their management, and uh, I was happy to work with them. And I'm still advising um, uh, them on their project. They broke ground, as you know, on a on a uh, French fry manufacturing facility in a free economic zone in Tula. Uh, project is going well, um, and the the uh, administration of Tula and the and the management of the free economic zone. That couldn't have been more accommodating and supportive, and it's been a wonderful experience for me personally, which reinforces my optimism. You know that I'm a pessimist, but it reinforces my my optimism that uh, there are certain regions in Russia that can uh, be very accommodating, that want foreign investment, and uh, and McCain, I think, has experienced that, and and the project in 2023, they'll be producing. Uh, French fries and specialty products locally in Russia and for the export market eventually uh, using Russian-grown potatoes, uh, which is uh, they've been importing frozen product from uh, from Poland and France, and that's a great achievement. There's no reason Russia can't have multiple French fry and potato products plants, and so that that's uh, another source of satisfaction. So advising them, advising, advising sequent basically on the Russian market in general, not about the software. Uh, I'm not, I don't know much about geological software. I've learned a lot by working with them for the last four years. But it's been a post-Kinross, a very diverse, very satisfying career. And the most important lesson I've learned is that people tend to listen to experts outside the country, company, 
more so than people who are inside the company. And I, I say that with all due respect and love for my former employers where I was inside, uh, I've, I've had more influence on, my, uh, on the companies that hired me as an outside consultant and advisor. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we're well over time. I'm, I'm going to wrap it up with a couple of quick questions. You've had a fabulous career. You have, uh, have not only had an interesting life and an interesting work path, you also have managed to influence the places and the companies you've worked with in a very positive way. I can say I, I salute you. And I was, I was very pleased with what you did with the association, with Serba during the toughest years of its existence as uh, relations began to, to, to deteriorate. So um, in any case, uh, you've had a great career, and I wish you the very best going forward. Tell me quickly, in 30 seconds or less, what made you a leader? My early years, my father instilled in me the, the, the necessity to treat everyone with respect, which I did, both superiors and subordinates, to have empathy, to listen to them, and to make sure that they understood that they were valued. And very briefly to say that uh, my best examples are at Visa, when I would have my junior colleagues who were the people responsible for individual bank accounts, and Russian, pompous Russian chief executives would say, why is this junior person here? And I explained to them, I said, these are the people that you and I need to rely on to make sure you're a, a very successful visa member. So that, that approach for me in, in my entire career has made me a leader, and I'm still in touch with many people over the decades that I've recruited to various companies and organizations I worked for. And um, I feel, I'm blessed to have uh, met so many capable, young, mostly Russian people who, uh, who will bring Russia to prosperity someday. Good for you. Tell me what the future holds. What does the future hold for Lou Namofsky? More, more retirement, quote unquote? <laughs> well, look, we, we all have experienced the effects of the, the negative effects of the pandemic. And so nobody's calling me anymore. Headhunters uh, stopped uh, last summer. People are searching for board directors, et cetera. I'm very content with my workload now. Um, I, could, I could do more and perhaps uh, there'll be more knocks on my door or more emails that uh, but I'm very content with the work-life balance. I've improved my golf handicap. Um, I've managed, my wife and I have managed not to kill each other during the pandemic, which is a major <laughs> achievement. We enjoy each other's company and uh, long may it continue. Here, here. Uh, yeah, best regards to Sylvia. She's a wonderful woman. Thank you. She has to be to put up with me. She really does. She really does. <laughs> what can I say? Well, we've been joined today by Lou Namofsky, Canadian businessman, former vice president and director general of the Kinross Gold Moscow office. Truly uh, uh, one of the most, if not the most involved Canadian in Russia business and the business of the countries of Eurasia. Thank you so much for your time today, Lou. My pleasure, Nathan. Best of luck to you and to Serba. Thank you. been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.